Hello and welcome to episode 40 of Can We Still Be Friends, a podcast that tests the limits of the friendship between two people who mistake movie taste for personal morality. I'm Nate Goss, here with Ryan Ebling. Nostalgia is a common topic here on Can We Still Be Friends, and Hollywood always likes to look back at bygone eras to make sense of the present day. In this episode, we're looking back at 1997's L.A. Confidential, a noir-inspired police mystery set in the 1950s. We weren't only interested in seeing it again, though that wasn't a tough sell, but we also wanted to talk about why certain decades seem to pique the interest of filmmakers and filmgoers. L.A. Confidential was a commercial and critical success, earning nine Oscar nominations and two wins, one for Kim Basinger as Best Actress, and one for its screenplay adapted from the James Elroy novel. L.A. Confidential tapped into the appeal of old Hollywood glamour and film noir, which brought the film a broad audience while appealing to cinephiles as well. But has its early appeal stood the test of time? Or is L.A. Confidential a movie best kept off the record, on the QT, and very hush-hush? Keep listening. Edmund, you're a political animal. You have the eye for human weakness, but not the stomach. You're wrong, sir. Would you be willing to plant corroborative evidence on a suspect you knew to be guilty in order to ensure an indictment? Dudley, we've been over this. Yes or no, Edmund? No. Would you be willing to beat a confession out of a suspect you knew to be guilty? No. Would you be willing to shoot a hardened criminal in the back in order to offset the chance that some lawyer... No. Then, for the love of God, don't be a detective. Stick to assignments where you don't have to make those kind of choices. Dudley, I know you mean well. But I don't need to do it the way you did. Or my father. At least get rid of the glasses. I can't think of a single man in the bureau who wears them. Well, Ryan, I know you would be willing to do most of those things in that clip we just listened to. But the question we're going to just... Does Ed Exley have it in him? That's that's the question in that scene there. That's the question in that scene. That's the question through most of the movie. Yeah. Um, But like you said, you and me, not a question. We have would both, done, we'll do again. We would both make great detectives. Right. Um, because right. we've got no problem getting our hands dirty yeah. in those ways. Absolutely. So. Yeah. Um, but yeah, that Ed Exley character. Uh, Guy Pierce. Kind of, yeah. Is who plays that character. Right. Guy Pierce plays Ed Exley. He's, a, he's an interesting character. I think the, this movie's full of interesting, conflicted characters. Absolutely. Complicated. It's, uh, one of the yes. things that makes LA Confidential a movie. Um, that I've enjoyed a lot mm-hmm. uh, throughout my life. Yeah, and actually, um, it, it had actually been a while since I've seen the movie, so mm-hmm. I was really excited to get back into it, yeah. try to try to watch it again, see how it maybe holds up over the years, because um, it doesn't seem like it'd be that old of a movie, but it actually kind of is. I mean, yeah. 97. 19, 19 years, yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. We're coming up on uh, 20 next year, right? Yeah. That's yeah. That so we're, we're just doing it a little early. The, the anniversary. Yeah. But the real reason we were doing this had actually to do with the fact that the nice guys came yeah, out, right? That's what we talked about in the last convoluted, episode. It's a convoluted thing. And I know uh, the, ni- that the nice guys is nothing like LA Confidential, really. But what got me thinking is because Russell Crowe and Kim Basinger are both in the nice guys and LA Confidential. Mm-hmm. And I just thought it was interesting for this like crime, uh, crime movie set in the past starring both of these actors, it just immediately reminded me of LA Confidential. Right, and then because I, uh, Nice Guys takes place in the 70s. Right. Yeah. And I did the math quickly in my head, 
and then I did it again in a calculator. And it was more sure, accurate. Right. To see the the time period, the 70s, is 40 years away from us right now. Hmm. And the 50s were 40 years away from 1997. So it was sort of interesting when I saw the 70s setting, I kind of had this feeling about it. And then I remember that it didn't feel that far away, like all these other things. And then I remember in the 90s, the 50s felt so far away, mm -hmm. you know? So that just kind of just got me thinking. And I think once I brought it up to you and just told you that, yes, it is interesting, Nate, don't look at me like that. <laughs> uh, you, We, we kind of started thinking about, well, why... What, what is it about the 50s and the 90s and the 70s today? Yeah. Why why do people pick any decade ever? Yeah, there's a lot of good, go there's a lot of different it. angles you could take this because as you've done the math, what is it about 40 years maybe? It's it's an interesting topic and I think this is a good movie to jump off of that. Yeah. So, I added think, to the fact that we really like I think LA Confidential. Well, yeah, I right? mean at least that's my memory of it is really liking it and right. so you know, we will do the, uh, the 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 regular conversation as well about what we think of the movie itself, but sort of through this lens, I think, yeah, of looking at time periods and and also looking at how historical periods I think are portrayed in movies that are mm -hmm. done years later. You know, yeah. So, um, we always like to start our episode by going over the first time we watched the movie, and then maybe talking about what we have it rated as uh, in our Letterbox.com account, which we haven't really talked about in a while. If you're Looking for a place to maybe keep a little diary of the movies you watched, we do that on a place called Letterboxd, uh, letterboxd.com, and you can follow us and just see what we've been watching, right. and we always rate basically what uh, the, the movies that we've seen on there and, and mm -hmm. talk about it. So um, do you want to yeah, talk about I, your first time seeing LA I actually have a very vivid memory of the first time I saw LA Really? Now, maybe strange, I don't know. 1997 was like the first year I really paid attention to movies. I was mm -hmm. only 13. But I remember, I mean, Titanic came out that year. Yeah. And um, I remember that Oscars, like, really I think, well. I, you know, you're right. I think Titanic made a lot of, like, I'm the same way. Like, that's the year I started paying attention to the Oscars in because particular. The, the, yeah, yeah, the Oscars was huge. Titanic, this huge hit. Is it going to win all the Oscars? Like, 14 nominations. It won 11. Um and LA Confidential was nominated that year. So I in the and you Oscar tried to kind of catch up, up with a lot of the other yeah. movies, yeah. Yeah, as a 13-year-old I would watch like the Oscar run-up stuff, like the Good Morning America segments and yeah. all that stuff whatever. And LA Confidential was always listed in there and it was kind of funny because as much as people were talking about Titanic, I felt like LA Confidential came out quite a bit and now in my recollection it's because the critics really liked LA Confidential. Mm -hmm. I would say like this is a great movie. It's it you know if anybody is going to be Titanic, it's the age it old story of the populist right? movie versus yeah. the critical darling, you know? right? Um, so I remember just seeing clips about it, of LA Confidential a lot. Um, that scene, I think it was it must have been in the trailer, but it, I think it was also in a lot of like the clip stuff. That scene where um, one of the the guys in the interrogation says, "I didn't kill nobody." Yeah, like that scene is always stuck in my head. It is in the trailer, by the way, because I just watched oh, the trailer, you? and it's one of those old school trailers with the the voice. Yeah. So, what's yeah, the yeah. guy's name who did all the trailers? I honestly don't remember, but I know he's like and he, famous. And he breaks down in the trailer all the characters. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's like, one of those. Yeah, like like, like the guy with integrity, yeah. the guy with a complicated <laughs> sense of justice, and the guy who wanted all the spotlight. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I can I can picture it. I was gonna I should have looked it up because i i was like i wonder how much of that trailer i would remember uh -huh. um so la confidential was always sort of like this movie i was intrigued by and then um i remember specifically when i got it from the video store we had this 
great independently owned video store. Yeah, you've mentioned like, it quite a, few, quite yeah. a bit actually on the podcast. And the, the, the people who worked there were never hesitant to give you their opinion. But uh, I remember it was, it must have been 2001 because You Can Count on Me was on VHS. So I got You Can Count on Me. I had heard good stuff about it. I was in high school. I would have been 16. So I got You Can Count on Me and LA Confidential. All right. Those are two on VHS, very different are, movies, but very, I, you know, I think we both say we very good movies, but not only that formative movies, like, Oh, those are two of like the most for a important lot of people, movies. Yeah. I think our age, like the right. people who are kind of coming up age first during time, that time, you know, yeah. Mark Ruffalo's first big movie with uh, you can count on me. And then, you know, Kevin Spacey was kind of like really big for like 10 years there mm-hmm. between like 95 and 2005 were right. kind of like his, Heyday. Um, so I, I had those and I didn't, I, I didn't know, like, I didn't know about LA Confidential. I got it because like, I'd always been intrigued by it. So I go up to the counter and you never knew with these guys, how it was going to be. And the guy holds them both up and looks at me and I was like, what? And he's like, these are great movies. <laughs> and I was like, <laughs> you were validated. Good. Yeah. <laughs> so the day I like, saw like, LA Confidential, hey, you've I done watched, good kid. Yeah. 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 <laughs> If if he yeah hey, we're proud at, of you. <laughs> <laughs> at some point in my life, I bet he was like going out the door and stopped, and then looked back at me and <laughs> just kind of nodded, yeah. and then walked back out the door. Um, so I watched both those movies in the same day, in the same afternoon. Wow! I watched You Can Count on Me first, and then I watched L.A. Confidential, and I loved it. And I remember I like told a friend of mine who was older than me. I was like, oh, I just saw LA Confidential. He's like, that's a great movie. And so, like, I've always felt good about watching LA Confidential because people that I really respected told me immediately that I was making a good yeah, choice. Yeah. Everything about it grabbed me. Um, and it's one that I've rewatched over and over. I don't own it, though. Of all the movies I own, I don't own that hmm, one. I don't know why. Either. Yeah. So, I take it, is this a five star on Letterboxd? It's actually four and a half. I'm surprised uh, to see. Okay. All right. And this is before the rewatch. Yeah. yeah. Okay. All right. Um, so for me, I didn't see this movie in the theater. I'm a little bit older than you, but not by much. Um, I was 14 when it came out. Um, but this is, I think, one of maybe three movies I can say I watched for the first time on Laserdisc. Whoa. <laughs> oh, my gosh. <laughs> yeah. This was a Laserdisc viewing for me. Um, you know, if you and for the listeners who are maybe a little bit younger, this is like yeah. a huge ass CD is it what was it looks like. like. It was like yeah, a record was that looked like a CD. It was as big as a record, but it was it looked like a CD on <laughs> yeah. both sides. Right. Because it couldn't hold much data for <laughs> as big as it was. And it was supposed to be like, this was like what high def was before yeah, DVDs. This was like, yeah. yeah. Um, wow. So the reason I saw it on Laserdisc was because... Um, it was my senior year of high school where I actually watched this. So it was around 2000. Um, And senior year was a year, it was the first time in our high school where you could actually, if you didn't want to eat in the cafeteria or in the commons area, you could just kind of leave and do what you wanted to. Uh And I wasn't an unpopular kid, but I was kind of in just like this fringe group. And and we, we hit it off really well with our journalism teacher. And he used to tell us if you wanted to eat in the AV room, you could do that. Mm-hmm. So we did that and it was just four of us guys during lunch senior year every lunch period we would go and we would eat in the AV room and we would just watch movies while we ate and they were all on laser disc. <laughs> the school had LA Confidential on laser and the disc. School, I isn't that weird? That's like super I didn't weird. think about it until now. And maybe it was his personal collection that he just kept in maybe. there. I have no clue. 
but I watched LA Confidential during school hours in high school, um, along with like Philadelphia for okay. some reason. He had a very, it was an odd collection of movies. But they Any were, collection of Laserdisc is an odd collection. <laughs> but they were mostly movies that all came out in the 90s okay. and were like critically acclaimed, basically. Huh. And so I just remember, and we didn't hardly know anything about movies. Yeah, we just what we saw was Kim Basinger on the cover and was like, "This <laughs> looks really, yeah, yeah, this looks good. Let's watch this one." And, yeah, uh, and it had it, it just the whole thing had style to it, mm-hmm. you know. And I don't even think we could we knew it was the fifties we were watching, but we could tell right away, even in high school, this is a very stylized version right. of the fifties that we're seeing. And I just remember we all kind of enjoyed watching it because it moved at just a really kind of quick pace and yeah. kept you interested. But I don't know that we all really understood. We understood the story, but we didn't really understand what the movie was doing yeah. as far as genre. Right. No right. clue. Sure. None of that. It didn't matter. We just enjoyed just it. Just twist ending. Yeah. And like, we yeah. just kind of liked it. Um, and then I, it just kind of stuck with me over the years. Mm-hmm. And then I just remember five or six years later just being like, yeah, I kind of just want to watch that again. And just yeah. picking it up and watching it again. I think I've seen it about three, four times. Every time I've always liked it a lot. Yeah. I don't know that I would always say it was like one of my all-time favorite movies, but mm-hmm. it always had kind of a special place in yeah. my heart as well. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So your letterbox rating? Um, I looked and it was a four star for okay. me. Okay. Yeah. Okay. And did that change on the rewatch? Um I think that our approach in this conversation is very interesting because um as far as movies when they're made during their time period, how mm-hmm. they portray other time periods, mm-hmm. to me, it's still a very good movie, but it's it felt of its time. Mm-hmm. It felt like a nineties movie. Yeah. More than I thought it would yep. when I rewatched it. I'm with you, and I, 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 and for certain reasons, because of that, um, and I, and I think it's probably unrealistic expectations on my part. I, I kind of feel like I'm more at a little three and a half right really, now. Really, it yeah. dropped a little bit for Not me. I think I'm just gonna keep it at four and a half. I, I think with its backstory, I would have expected it to like go back up to five, but for me, it's yeah, it's. I was surprised. So I think we can get into that a little bit. Okay. We'll get back to that idea of things not being what you remember them. But one of the things, we can get into it, um, that surprised me. I just, the opening credits, I remember being so full of life. And this time I was like, oh, that's actually pretty conventional. You got to Come to Los Angeles. The sun shines bright. The beaches are wide and inviting. And the orange grove stretches far as the eye can see. There are jobs aplenty. And land is cheap. Every working man can have his own house. And inside every house, a happy all-American family. You can have all this. And who knows? You could even be discovered. Become a movie star. Or at least see one. Life. The voiceover by Danny DeVito. That, you yeah. get the intro to the Hush Hush magazine, all this stuff going on. And I, I'm like, okay, it does a good job of introducing the movie and the feel of yes. it. But it, this time around, I felt like it only did that. Do you think it's because we've seen that? And, I think it, and so, it seems yeah. it's like kind of at a slower pace now because mm-hmm. in, the, in, in the time since people have done that thing, but it's been more kind of sped up or, yeah. or at, a, at a higher clip. Because mm-hmm. I remember. In fact, you know, if I look back on that high school experience of watching it in that AV room, the first thing I remember, yeah. really, it was Danny DeVito's voiceover in that beginning. Mm-hmm. The whole, the whole line, the mm-hmm. on the QT, um, off the record, uh, off the, the record, QT, QT, very, very hush, hush. hush. Yep, that, that's probably like the first thing that kind of strikes you about the movie. Not only is it the first thing in the movie, but it's such a big part of not only driving the plot, but 
the whole feel of the movie. It's that pulpy kind of yeah, there. yeah. Um, so I would say probably the first time you watch that movie, that definitely is the part that sticks with you. I feel like every time I've watched it, something else has stuck out to me. Hmm. Um, I remember the last time I watched it, the shootout at the Victory uh, Motel scene hmm. just blew me away. the The lighting of it and the shoot the the this way is near that, the this is near the, the very end. end of the movie. Yeah, you've gotten the twist by now, right? And I, and I, yeah. I didn't mean like. Plot-wise, it's not super important what happens there just yet in our conversation. But I just remember every like the way that the bullets would create these shafts of light into yeah. the room, yeah, and just the 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 very stark lighting making it so noirish mm-hmm. just really struck, struck struck me the last time I saw it. This time it was something different. I was yeah. struck by how um, from the beginning James Cromwell is such an unsettling character. Partly because he's Farmer Hoggett. Partly because James Cromwell has that voice, that face that should be so comforting. Yeah. But you just know it's not. And you kind of know it's not just because of the setting it's in. Yeah. You're kind of like, this is a weird casting choice. And then especially after you've seen it, his performance, James Cromwell's performance, really rewards the second and third and 15th viewing. And that's the other one of the things that I think makes this movie really great is its casting. Mm-hmm. James Cromwell, of course. Kevin Spacey as that like suave. He's so good in that. He's part. amazing. Yeah, Russell Crowe does a great job. Mm-hmm. Um, that was my first movie mm-hmm. of, that I ever saw of his. I think yeah. it is one of his earlier, one of his first, one of his first movies. So. But and, and I think it pretty insider, much put him on, yeah, put him on the map, and rightly so. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's a perfect uh, character for him to play. You know, honestly, I could name everybody because everybody's perfectly cast. Well, and I think a testament to that is the fact that you could go through that whole cast and it is one of their best performances of their entire career. Yeah. You're talking about scenes that really hit you mm-hmm. at certain times. This time around, it was the interrogation scene for me. Oh, yeah. Like the the pacing of that is mm-hmm. just, you are on the edge of your seat when you watch that. And it's all acting. Was, who's the girl? What's her name? Who are you talking about? Was she at the night out? Lewis, listen to me. Was she at the night out? <laughs> Newspaper shit ain't shit. Where's the girl Fontaine's talking about? Did you kill her? You wanted Lewis to lose his cherry, but that wasn't enough. So things got out of hand and you made her bleed. She bled on your clothes, so you burned the clothes. I told you that! Now listen to me. If that girl is still alive, she's the only chance you've got. I think she's alive. You think? Then where is she now? Did you leave her someplace? Just sell her out? <laughs> tell me where she is! Move! <laughs> You've seen interrogation scenes before, but it usually sticks to three people, you know, maybe good, good cop, cop, bad, bad cop, cop, the right. guy, maybe, maybe there's somebody on the other side of the wall mm-hmm. or the glass, yeah. but this one is so complicated. Yeah. He's, he's going between three different rooms, talking to different people, throwing the mic on so the other person can hear certain parts. But then you've got the added layer of almost the entire department sitting outside watching this and reacting. Yeah. On top of all that, you've got Exley who, who has been vilified by this department not only does he need the guys to confess he needs to be successful so that he isn't completely ostracized mm-hmm. from so there's all these layers of pressure too and he's flying without a net because he's asked you know do you want me to go in and he's like no i've got all three like i'm gonna do mm-hmm. this whole thing so he's good cop and bad cop and like the person watching who would usually kind of give like He's cracking. You got to do this. Right. Like he's just completely honest. It's 
it's a it's a mesmerizing scene. So that was something that you that, like that was the standout for you this time. Yeah, it's one of those things where it's just kind of like no matter how my opinion of this movie changes over time, I cannot argue with the fact that it's just got these amazing moments that are perfectly executed and it's mm-hmm. just such high quality filmmaking. And you it's know? a rare movie that rewards every level of viewer. Yes. Honestly, if you're there for the sex and the violence and the mystery, you can pretty much get your fix. Get what you need, yeah. Without being lost in the complications. Because the movie does an amazing job of leading you through it. Mm-hmm. Even if at the end you couldn't totally connect the dots <laughs> and you forget about Dick Stensland from the beginning and the Night Owl murders is just like, you don't even remember where those were, right. why that happened. You can still hang with the movie and have fun with it and enjoy what's going on and be like, that was a great, that was like so crazy when he like broke the chair and then he did this. But if you really need a movie that is full of character, it's got that. It's got so many great characters, so many different characters. If you need a movie that's going to like challenge you with its plot, mm-hmm. it'll do that too. If you feel like following it very closely, you can still totally be rewarded with like the unfolding of the mystery. Yeah. I feel like so, a lot of movies can't toe that line between it's really fun and everybody can enjoy it and it's really complex and some people will really appreciate that. Yeah. Like Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy. I don't know if you saw that movie. I've, it's always been on my I need to see this list and I, know. I just haven't done it. Now, here's the thing. I love spy movies. You know that. Yeah. Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy was so complex that I just was like, okay. You're almost getting tired. Like I, I did. Yeah. And I stopped following it. I, I kept watching it, but I stopped following it. And by the end, when like the big reveal happened, I'm like, I, I don't even remember who that was. Yeah. And that's that's on me. Like I was probably too tired or something. But it's one of those movies that I, I would say didn't handle it well enough to be like like that popcorn, right. you know, just right. uh, summer, like whatever. And, and yeah. not every movie has to be that, but like, um, but a I spy movie often should be. Right. You know what I mean? Like, right. <laughs> it should be entertaining if it's a spy movie. <laughs> yeah, you shouldn't need to know like the ins and outs of the British spy system. So yeah. I think that's something that this movie does better than almost any other like mystery yeah. sort of like intrigue movie. So it's it's a movie that for me is really done well with repeat viewings but i kind of wonder if it's hit a point of diminishing returns now well that's yeah maybe we should get into that because that's yeah with kind of my experience i don't want i don't want that to make it sound like i didn't enjoy watching it this time right i think maybe just certain things struck me differently and mm-hmm. not necessarily in a totally positive way yeah um like all of a sudden just kind of seeing maybe a little weakness here and there and weakness <sighs> or just it hasn't aged well well, or doesn't it, like we've watched it enough. <laughs> well, it's crazy that the amount of times I've watched it and how I still have to feel like I'm kind of still trying to piece really everything mm-hmm. together. This is, and this comes from the book, from what I understand. Although I didn't read the book, but it is a very dense, complicated yeah, plot. James Elroy always writes very thick novels, right? So I I commend the movie for even being able to pull it off, and yeah. that you actually can follow it, it if you pay attention. And it does, well. yeah, and it and it knows where 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 to hold back. It knows where to you know really reveal yeah. and, but yeah, I mean, I guess we can maybe get into some of the more things that struck me as I guess the best word I'd have for it is just kind of odd. Now, okay, let me get into one of the things that I think it sort of dates the movie, but it's not the movie's fault, <laughs> and that is the movie about cops and the way cops work and the way cops 
make mm-hmm. decisions mm-hmm. and the tough positions they might be in. And the character study there is amazing. And you've got everyone kind of represented. You know, you've got the one who wants to live by the rule of the law. And you've got the other one mm-hmm. who just has that sort of fire in him that he's going to make that decision that needs to be made, even if it's hard. You know, we know this. Yeah. So I think the, the movie could have never predicted the firestorm we now have with how mm-hmm. cops are viewed, you know, yeah, and right. how race plays into that. Specifically in the beginning of the movie, and perhaps this is all intentional and it's brilliant because of this, but I feel like the the movie is trying to get the audience to um, sympathize a little bit more with Bud White mm-hmm. and think Ed Exley is just an absolute weenie who needs to get his ass kicked, yeah. you know, because he doesn't understand real life. Right. And, you know, there's the part where Bud White, his integrity is that he would never rat out his partner. Mm-hmm. Bloody Christmas. The press love to label. Officer White, you should know this is bigger than the police board. The grand jury's convening. Indictments may be handed down. Will you testify? No, sir, I won't. District Attorney Law. You and Officer Stenslin brought the liquor to the station. Stenslin was already drunk. So do you see how appearing as a voluntary witness against him could offset the damage that you've done to yourself? Sir, I won't testify against my partner or anyone else. This man. And that that little bit alone doesn't seem to be a line that you would hear in the same way if, a, if that movie was made today. Because, that. because you would have a lot of people now who are saying, you know what? We, have, we know the history of yeah. racism in the police departments especially like the LAPD. Yeah. And um, I can't sympathize with that character because right. yeah. Bud White, if he knew this was going on, he should have ratted him out. You know, yeah. like that is more timely. That idea of top to bottom cover up yeah. is more timely today. But the idea of the LAPD being in hot water for racial reasons is actually, I mean, I, I think they had a big incident in early 20th century, the Zoot Suit Riots mm-hmm. and th- those sorts of things. There were a lot of racially charged, although that may have been the military, but there were a lot of racially charged things and corruption in the LAPD. So it actually could have been part of the reason why this story felt timely to people in 97 was this idea that like the stuff with the LAPD is coming back. Like it's always been this sort of thing. But you're right that the way we view the root of that problem nowadays makes Bud White a very difficult character because exactly he's part of the problem. It just didn't, it just didn't, it sit, it sat weird this yeah. time, you know? Yeah. Well, I think another thing that's sort of tied into that, not so much modern day real life, but what we as audiences have seen and become used to is the anti-hero, the conflicted cop, the, that sort of thing that is not new to us anymore. Mm-hmm. Like we've seen it done too overtly we've seen it done really subtly we're almost we're pre- probably pretty fatigued at this point actually yeah. of the anti-hero but you can imagine you know when your choice is titanic with mm-hmm. like a very clear villain and very clear heroes and 100% pure on the hero side yep. and 100% evil on the other side that to see LA confidential is just this complete breath of fresh air right it's not like it was a complete anomaly. You had Fargo the year before, which, you know, had some complex characters. And there, there's always been antiheroes. It's not like, you know, House invented the antihero. But um, <laughs> yeah. 
I think that that was another thing that made it so vibrant at the time and is something that makes it feel a little bit tired now is yeah, you're probably right. And I don't, and again, I want to repeat that I'm not, I can't fault the movie for that. No, you know, and I'm not faulting. We're just because, talking about the experience of watching yeah. it. And, um, something that I noticed this time around that just didn't seem so honest about the movie was, um, I felt like in the last quarter of the movie, as you're starting to get the, the reveal, things happen a lot quicker. And I feel like sometimes it's moving quickly because it doesn't want you to think too hard about it. And one of the instances would be, I'm just not buying that Bud White and Ed Exley would that quickly become buddies and start working on this together. Yeah. Now, they have their moment. They fight mm-hmm. it out. But I could see them working together to figure, out, figure this out. But it's got that weird ending where they're almost like... Like buddy cops, like here yeah, out. from yeah, here like on out. L.A. Confidential too, right? <laughs> Bud and Bud Ed, and Ed. <laughs> yeah. Like <laughs> that last you. scene was just weird to me. It, I didn't buy it. You know, yeah. um, I didn't buy that they would still be even even friendly oh, like to in each the car. other. Yeah, like that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a small complaint, they, I know, right. but um, I can see. That. I just thought character development. This is a movie all about character, right? And that didn't seem true to the characters to me. There. I can understand that. I haven't read the book. But I can imagine that being something that was in translation. The cutting room floor. Yeah. The book has a much longer, you know, whatever. Um, And here's another thing that's less believable about it. The movie tried to make Lynn their connection at the end. Uh Uh-huh. It's like, I... That was the source like, of their fight. Yeah, and like, she never really liked Ed. Right. Right? I mean, am I right. wrong about that? Like, I no, can't... She, I, like, she always thought she, she was had, kind like, of a despicable for character. Him. Yeah. yeah. And she only did it, Satine-esque. She only right. did it... <laughs> Bringing back our last episode. Right, yeah. from Moulin Rouge, to get what she needed, you know? Yeah. I see Bud, because he doesn't know how to disguise who he is. I see Bud for all the ways he's different from you. Don't underestimate me, Miss Bracken. The way you've underestimated Bud White? Yeah, and I never really saw that moment where she had any um, tenderness towards Ed. Yeah. I don't remember that happening. I don't think it does. Except that maybe... She feels like he saved, helped save Bud's life, like kept Bud safe. But yeah, I guess I never really thought about it. I mean, I think uh, the movie isn't airtight. I think it's very difficult for a movie so complex to be airtight. Well, yeah. But like I said, it it's so effective in moving you along that it holds up to quite a bit of scrutiny, a lot yes. more than a lot of other movies. Yeah. I mean, referencing other episodes, Mission Impossible, that movie holds up to no scrutiny. <laughs> yeah. Um, but this movie, you really kind of have to dig deep. And even then it's just things that maybe wouldn't happen in real life, you know, Mm -hmm. like, okay. So Bud and Ed become pals too quickly. Well, okay. But here's the thing. I started to wonder, I'm like, do they, they being Elroy who wrote the book, I don't know how the book ends or, um, Hanson as the director, do they love these characters too much to let them go? Because I almost feel like the ending might have been better if Bud White had died. Bud. Yeah. And then you would have even had that mm-hmm. weird encounter and you would always have that sort of in the air. Like, would, yeah. would they have reconciled? It was a weird moment in that movie where it felt like something that was tied up too neatly in a way that felt contrary to the rest of the movie. Yeah. I think. Yeah. You have to, I do wonder how the, the book ends or if it was something the studio wanted or, you know, 
But again, I, I wonder how much of that is our uh, 19 years later, having seen Breaking Bad, yeah. having seen The Wire, having seen all these things, certainly, and saying like, certainly yeah, that. you can, you you actually can have a satisfying story that ends ambiguously, that ends darkly. Yeah. It, it certainly didn't bug me back right. when I watched it the first few times. I, it's so. never bugged me. I, I really hadn't thought about it until you brought it up. And I don't know how fair that is, you know, like... For for me, you mean for any of us to you know. Well, that's I remember somebody. uh, There was a. We need to remember who it is because I say this a lot. That hindsight is not insight. Mm -hmm. Um, That being able to say, ah, you know what, I would have done this differently, and that's informed by 19 years of really great Mm -hmm. stuff that stood on the shoulders of LA Confidential. You know, like you can't really fault fault it for things that people have built on. No, I think using it as a base. I think you're absolutely right. And so I don't think I I would fault it. I, I I think it's just that's that's how I watch it now. It's, just, yeah, it's almost impossible sure. for me not to notice those of things course, now. You of know? course. So I think um, one of the things that I noticed this time watching this movie is uh, what I found the movie to be saying, or what the movie is, you know, capital A about. Okay. For me, um, and like I I alluded to at the beginning, this this sort of meaning is appropriate. Because this movie isn't all that I remembered it being. Mm-hmm. And I feel like this movie is about disillusionment hmm. or crumbling belief systems almost. That um, they all talk about the reasons they became cops in that one scene. You remember, Exley and Vincennes are talking about why they became cops. What's your point? Rollo Tomasi's the reason I became a cop. I wanted to catch the guys who thought they could get away with it. Was supposed to be about justice. Then somewhere along the way, I lost sight of that. Why'd you become a cop? <laughs> I don't remember. So you've got these ideals that people had and possibly the public has for the police, all kind of crumbling and going away because their ideals met up with reality and reality won. Mm-hmm. You know? Which, going back to maybe why they chose, why the 50s is appealing. Well, the, yeah, I was going to get to that. Okay, you, you do it then. I'll let you do it. I, I think I see where you're going yeah. here. Yeah. But you've also <clears throat> even have young talent. People, how many of those characters, they're side characters, but on this viewing, I really noticed how much time they really do give to the dreams of these young actors, mm-hmm. all of whom became facsimiles of stars. They were made to look like movie stars. They were cheap imitations and used cheaply as prostitutes. So you've got this idealism of beauty and art being cut into beauty that people already have said they like and being used for paid sex. Mm-hmm. There's no art in what they're doing. And um, not only that, but they're taken advantage of by the industry and by the police. The people who are supposed to protect them are people who have taken part in their prostitution mm-hmm. and have their not system. protected yeah. them. And so, like you got to, the 50s is a very idealized time. Mm-hmm. Hollywood, especially that era of Hollywood, mm-hmm. is so glamorized. The stars were so glamorous and everything That's was the- perfect. They call it the golden age. And we've got this idea of post-war America was just perfect. Mm-hmm. And they don't harp on that at all. But they set it there. 
and just show the underbelly, this crumbling of all that that was wrong, even in that time period yeah. that we look back on. And that's the the American values. That's the house we want. That's the family we want. Well, no, that was a racist time. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the civil rights brought it. Like it seems like the sixties were worse, but that's only because people were finally fighting it. That's only when it's they were like to, people were trying to tear off the mask. Really. Yeah, it's not like yeah. people started being racist in the sixties and then everybody <laughs> was like, wait a minute, this is getting too out of hand. It was like Everybody was racist for a really long time. The fifties were racist. There were prostitutes in the fifties. The the well, it it goes back to what you're saying about these characters. They're starting to question things. Yeah, they're starting to question their motives and why they do things. Yeah, you know. And America was questioning things in the early nineties with police and racism. And mm-hmm. Bill Clinton at that time was in, involved in the sex scandal. So, well, who's our leader? And mm-hmm. like, the president is supposed to be presidential, not getting blowjobs in the Oval Office. Right. Like, <laughs> what's happening here? Um, and so the movie for me this time around was all about how ideals crumble and what do you do when that happens Mm -hmm. do you crumble with it or do you stand up against it yeah and where do you think the movie stands on that i think you (laughs) that's a good question and in a way i feel like la confidential was maybe a counterintuitive at best a bad choice at worst for the discussion of why pick different decades for nostalgia because i think the 50s had its heyday in the 80s you've got like back to the future Hmm. stand by me stand by me that i think is when when the 80s make a movie set in the 50s Mm -hmm. they're not really challenging that much about the 50s right and then when you get to the 90s 90s, with like um well you've got obviously la confidential mm -hmm. you've also got pleasantville um, pleasantville but yeah that the 90s was sort of that deconstruction of that glossy view of the 50s and in the 90s I feel like the glossy view is on the 60s. I think 30 years ago is like, oh man, those were the days. And I yeah. think it's the childhood of the 30-year-olds, the 30, the 30 to 40-year-olds. That childhood is the glossy time. Hmm. And then... I see what you're saying, yeah. Um, so what's an example of a, a 90s movie set in the 60s that was really rosy of the 60s? Uh, the Sandlot. Forrest Gump was mostly Forrest in the Gump? 60s. Yeah. yeah. Sandlot. Yeah. Now and then, right? Yep. Uh, uh, what was it? Was it uh, that movie, The War, <laughs> with Kevin yeah. Costner and Elijah yeah, yeah, Wood? Yeah. yeah. My Girl? I think there's a lot. And uh, I don't, we don't need to keep going through every decade like the or So in the 2000s, it was in the <laughs> 70s. But, that um, but from what I gather of the nice guys i haven't seen it and it's like i'm not really basing anything but it's it's a very violent very vulgar movie about like bad the nice guys i think it's sort of an ironic title mm-hmm. these guys aren't super nice but again it's the 70s which is 40 years ago and it's not a rosy view of that decade was there ever a rosy view of the 70s though <laughs> Well, that's why I wanted Although to... you did yes. have... Last yes. decade, you had the 70s show, which was... A... You had that 70s show. You had Almost Famous. True. Yeah, you're right. Um, Boogie Nights came out the same year as LA Confidential. Right. That was set in the 70s. Definitely not rosy. No. Although it was Although, a little bit rosy in the 70s, and the 80s in the got 80s the was bad when it rap was bad. In, the, in the Boogie Nights. But we're ta- uh, another thing, though, um, as far as like... Because I was wondering if like 97 was sort of like a nostalgic year... And it wasn't like overwhelmingly nostalgic looking at the movies that came out, but that is the year that um, the Star Wars movies were re-released into theaters. Hmm. So there was sort of like this 
general like looking back mindset um but i i feel like there is something to this 30 years glossy 40 years the deconstruction of that right and right now have we talked about how the 80s have come back we did in our last we did, episode. Yeah, we sort we of were talked like about leading that. So that's this. the glossy time right now. Yeah, we're in the glossy time of looking at the eighties. I think you see that a lot in sitcoms. You've got like Goldberg's is set in the eighties. I don't know if you've seen that show. I think I've seen an episode. Yeah, yeah, and it makes sense because we are in our thirties. Yes, absolutely. And my view of the eighties is pretty rosy. Now, for here's the, most the thing, part. you know, I because about I, this because you get scared of like. I hate how everyone's always staring at their smartphones. And you know, when we were kids, it was just simpler, yeah. you know, <laughs> we played outside. Yeah. I've talked, we about, had, I've talked to we you. Had six channels on the TV, right. you know, <laughs> somebody had to get up. Yeah. I have talked to you about this before and I've never really talked about it on mic, but it's something that I think is not only happening and true, but something that I think is dangerous truthfully. And here's the thing. We aren't making movies so much about the eighties. But we've got Transformers, we've got Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, we've got Fuller House coming back, we've got Pee-Wee's had a new movie. Pee-Wee had a new movie on Netflix. There are cartoons being remade. We've got this rampant nostalgia for things from our childhood, 30-somethings, 40-somethings childhoods back in the 80s and creeping into the 90s now. Um, You've got Jimmy Fallon bringing the Saved by the Bell cast back together. Mm-hmm. And like all these things that people are cashing in on. And the reason I think it's dangerous is, first off, let me tell you why I think it's happening. And I don't think it's uh, supremely uh, unique to our generation, but I think it kind of hit our generation a little bit harder. And that is that when we were kids, what was adulthood going to be like? Mm-hmm. Like it was going to be the greatest, right? Like we could eat pizza whenever we wanted and we could finally like do all that stuff that like adults do and I'm going to mm-hmm. spend my money on this and all that stuff. And then we got to adulthood or we're about to get to adulthood and not only did 9/11 kind of interrupt our teenage years, but 2008 and the financial collapse ruined our young adult yeah. years because we didn't have money, we didn't get jobs and we realized adulthood sucks. And I <laughs> know that older generations would call this uh, being whiny uh, oh, and, yeah, yeah or a sign of our generation but i think our adulthood was harder than our parents adulthood yeah our we, parents maybe not the generation before no, that no but our yeah. parents yes our parents adulthood and so we had to live with our parents which was seen by them as laziness or failure or failure on their part and ours but really it was my college degree, which cost me 16 times more than yours, got me no job. And the unpaid internship, that job market exploded. Mm-hmm. But the actual paying job market right. was nowhere. And full-time employment was no guarantee that you were actually going to be able to even mm-hmm. have a chance at the kind of stuff that your parents had a chance at. Right. And they received full-time employment really yeah. anywhere. Right. <laughs> yeah. Know? And that's not the job that we're going to do until we die. And it's not going to necessarily be the job that sustains us. We still have to live with our six friends. And adulthood sucked. Ignoring who's to blame for that. <laughs> so what happened to our generation is... We regressed and we went inside ourselves and we said, I need to go back to when I was happy and things were good and when adulthood didn't suck. Mm -hmm. 
So we dress like our parents. We wear the glasses our parents used to wear. We put filters on our pictures to make them look old like our pictures used to look. We bring back the TV shows and movies from our childhood. And we try to recreate our childhoods as adults. And you see like the outbreak of like adult Chuck E. Cheese's like ball pits for ch- for adults. Like right. we want it. We we haven't been able to move past that because adulthood hasn't embraced us, and we have not been able to embrace it. And so the reason I think it's become dangerous is when I saw not even the whole pilot, but part of the pilot for Fuller House, <clears throat> and that show was so depressingly bad. And what I the reason I think it's dangerous, and we need to like really just buckle down and move on say enough is is enough right and not and just take adulthood back we've stagnated you've got some positive things you know i'll say the batman reboot like that was a positive contribution while also looking back and building off the thing Mm -hmm. but then when you've got fuller house which is literally recycling the script so anyway that's pretty far afield from LA Confidential. I'm sorry I led us there. But I think it's tight. I think that's the current state of nostalgia. And it feels very desperate. And it feels very regressive. I think what we're missing is this evaluative, deconstructive look back hmm. that LA Confidential brings. And that is one reason why I think this is a great and important movie. Because doesn't handhold you through that deconstruction. It doesn't point to specific things about the 50s. It takes this general idea that we all have about the 50s mm-hmm. and Hollywood glamour, and it's a backdrop to this story that then can be extrapolated to the backdrop and the bigger time. There is a positive contribution, a positive outcome to looking back, whereas now our looking back is just this desperate, like gazing through a rain-soaked right. window. Right. Do you disagree? You look like you disagree. What I'm wondering is, do you think just waiting it out will will take care of it in the sense that we are in that rosy period because we are in our 30s now? And if we just wait till we're in our 40s, we're going to see a lot of movie movies come out or TV shows come out that are going to just nail our, our decade that we grew up in, you know, because you talked about the nice guys, but I, one of the highest rated shows last year was Fargo season two. Mm. And that was, for whatever reason, they decided to set that in the 70s. It yeah. is a very, that, very yeah. Yeah, yeah. Uh, dark, grim look at that period with still, kind of like LA Confidential, actually, it has those touches where you're kind of like, the nostalgia is sort of still there. You know, you're kind of like, mm-hmm. that's what the living rooms looked like. And that's what, you sure. know, the hairstyles were. And, and it feels lived in, you know? Yeah. But well, it's very, very critical of yeah. the politics of the time. Um, it's very honest and grim about the underworld of crime going on in mm-hmm. there. You know, so is it a matter of us? We just need to wait it out. We Maybe. need to wait out another I'm five, not six, seven years. Nobody and, is know. being smart or critical right now, you know? I'm just saying the prevailing, the, the thing that's different is that... It's lazy. I'll put you... It's super lazy because, because you take even Back to the Future, which is a rosy movie of the 50s. It's at least a, a new concept. Now we're just saying, oh, you loved that when you were a kid. Let's just do it again. Right. Exactly. That's what like, I'm saying. 
That's what I'm saying. Yeah, don't change anything about it. You freaking make those characters women? How dare you? Like, like the fact that that is such a thing isn't just... Ghostbusters. Ghostbusters, Ghostbusters. yeah, Yeah, sorry. Ghostbusters with the all-female cast, people are so, so angry. You can't even reboot something in a slightly askew way. Right. (laughs) And not only is that sad because of the blind sexism there, but it's also sad... Because of how personally people are taking it. Yeah. You're ruining my childhood is what people say about it. Yeah. Not some people are being complete lunatics and saying, um, you know, they're just appealing to feminists and this is the you know, America going down the toilet. But what you hear mostly is you're ruining my childhood, which it's so sad that that is how important that movie is. But that's what people are remembering about their life. We're disillusioned. Yes. You know, we are disillusioned to the point where we're, we're just grasping at whatever we can mm-hmm. and saying, I need to have something I can that hold will on make to for that, I was happy then. If I have that back, I will be happy again. And it's, I'm not saying that nobody is deconstructing and being smart and analyzing, but people are not paying to see it. Yeah. LA Confidential was a big hit. Yeah. The, what I think is the, the saving grace is actually movies that are looking closer. The big short. Uh, spotlight movies mm. that are saying like you're not unhappy because Ghostbusters has a female cast. You're unhappy because like the big shorts saying like let's really look at why we're unhappy and life sucks right now. It's because the banks did this knowingly. The government let them happen, let it happen. The government is continuing to let it happen and will let it happen again. Spotlight same thing with religion Mm -hmm. like here are the reasons you're unhappy it has nothing to do with the fact that teenage mutant ninja turtles went off Mm -hmm. the air like that is what i see as being the vital look back material you know and it's interesting you say that because both of those movies actually i do consider them somewhat also historical dramas because they are so clued into what that period looked like right you know you watch spotlight or big short and you're like yes that's the early 2000s. That's yep. exactly what that looked like, you know, and there's, yep. there's that, there's still that attention to detail, right? but their purpose is entirely different. There's no nostalgia in those things. You Not know? at all. All right. So we've, we've gone pretty far away from 1950s LA, but I, I, I don't, I, I, I followed it. Yeah. I think like LA Confidential, casual listeners, people who are just, you know, going about their business will be able to follow this conversation. <laughs> and people who feel like listening to this episode 50 times will probably find some holes they'll, in they'll, our logic, right. but it'll hold together yeah. even under scrutiny, right? <laughs> yes, I, I will I will agree that this podcast episode was of the caliber of LA, LA Confidential. Confidential. Yeah. yeah, it's, I think it'll go down in history as the LA Confidential of <laughs> podcast episodes. Yes. Um, so does your rating change at all? I don't. I can't imagine it would. Um. Well, I mean, it's three and a half. I, I'm three and a half, four stars. I don't know. Yeah, I'll probably, whatever. I'll probably keep it at a four star just because I feel like as I talked it through, I was just being a little nitpicky. Yeah, you were. But uh, you were. But, but that's fine. You know. But I think what I was trying to highlight ultimately was that even a movie made in the '90s, set in the '50s, though it's set in a past time period, still shows the characteristics of the year it was made the Mm nineties, you know? Oh, certainly. You know what I mean? And so I think at this, this viewing, especially knowing we were going to be talking about it through this lens, it just sort of really showed to me like, yes, this is actually a nineties movie. LA confidential is a nineties movie. Very much. Um, and 
I can take those little nitpicky things and be like kind of compartmentalize them into that 90s thing. Mm -hmm. It's still a great movie. Yeah. 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 I'm not going to bump it up to five. I think actually if this makes any sense or matters at all, I think my opinion of it dropped it to a four. Hmm. But recollecting on how important it was to me, bumped it up a half star. So it stays at four and a half, but there was movement within that. (laughs) (laughs) Dear Lord. (laughs) These stars, man. Yeah. (laughs) They mean a a lot. We need a chart to understand what we're talking about. (laughs) I feel like... uh, I think we're on the same page pretty much. For the most part, I think we've got an understanding of each other. Sure. So... um, Why don't we go ahead and talk about what we're going to be discussing in our next episode of Can We Still Be Friends? Well, we've talked enough about the upcoming remake. We might as well just watch the original. Just do it. Next episode, episode 41. Nobody, we didn't get any over the hill uh, birthday cards for our 40th episode. I was hoping for like a new mug, you know, an over the 40, over the hill mug. Yeah, that's kind of on me. I should have gotten you that. But I don't think I actually said the name. We're going to watch Ghostbusters, the yeah. original Ghostbusters next time. Part of the reason why I don't understand why this new movie would ruin your childhood is that this movie wasn't really a part of my childhood. No. I saw it later in life. And I think it'll be interesting to see how it holds up. Like, is it a movie of its time? Mm-hmm. And a reboot is actually going to be a breath of fresh air. Or is it a movie that didn't really need to be touched? Yeah, it wasn't really part of my childhood either, except for the cartoon. The cartoon was actually more sure, a part yeah. of my life than the yeah. movie. And, um, I mean, it's one of those movies that I'm a little nervous about watching because when I did watch it, I, I was just really lukewarm on it. And I know that there's so many people who listening who love Ghostbusters. So why don't, we'd love to hear from those people. Like, yeah. what, what, what was it I was missing? Yeah. What should I be thinking about as I watch this again? And as much as we want to hear that, we also want you to rewatch it with... A critical eye. Don't just hate us if we don't love it. Don't just yell at us for... We want an informed hate. Yeah. I would say most of you would need to rewatch it. Just based on what I know of people's viewing habits of Ghostbusters. And I've done a lot of, I've, I've done a lot of looking You've into it. You've done the it. research. Yeah. I think there was recently a Pew Research study that said most fans of Ghostbusters yes. hadn't seen it in at least five years. Right, yeah. Like 80%. Oh, yeah. Like 83% hadn't seen it in five years. And then another... Um, 15% hadn't seen it in 10 years. So right. it's really actually a very small percentage of people who've seen it recently. Right. So so we're trying to remedy that. This a is, bit. yeah, research based information. Rewatch it because I can't guarantee you haven't seen it recently. But the, the odds are, based on all the research out there, and there is a lot, <laughs> right. you haven't seen it recently. So as you rewatch it, right. as you ponder everything we said about nostalgia in this episode as you think about LA Confidential uh, yourself we would love to hear any thoughts or comments that you might have or questions we we answer questions too if you've got any we do Um, so get in contact with us you can always shoot us an email that's feedback at canwestillbefriends.net while I'm talking about that URL that's the URL of our website www.canwestillbefriends.net and you can always comment on the episode on our actual website um, and then we've also got the, you know, Facebook, Twitter. We're there. Classic. Haven't gotten into Snapchat yet. No, I don't know why we would. Well, let us know if you think we should be on Snapchat. Yeah. And uh, you can even give us a phone call if you'd like. Leave us a voicemail. That number is 847-306-9532. And I just want to say, our last episode was Moulin Rouge, and the response on that was great. I loved reading what people had to say about their experience watching Moulin Rouge and what we had to say about it and their thoughts where they disagreed and agreed. So keep that up. 
Yeah, we loved hearing it. And there are so many ways to listen to our podcast. You've got iTunes, and if you listen to us on iTunes, it would be great if you left us a rating. We've got Google Music, which mm-hmm. is a new a new place we're at. Place for us. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> Couldn't think of the word uh, place. Yeah. We've got Stitcher. We've got Player FM. We've got a bunch of different ways for you to find us. We don't really care. Just so grateful that you're listening. And we won't stop talking. No. So you will have to keep listening. I think I'm just going to actually do a fade out this time. Let's just oh, keep talking really? and I'll just fade it out. So we just need so... noise and talking so that it sounds like our listeners. And thank you. Yes. Goodbye. So yeah, thank you for that. Thank you for that. And, and goodbye we'll and see you next time. Social networks. networks.